As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Jeffrey Rosenberg, Portfolio Manager, Systematic Multi-Strategy Fund at BlackRock. I don't know which way this is going to cut. You know, Jeff, we talked to Steve Major of HSBC at Bloomberg today, and there's this whole idea of, okay, we've had this move. Now, which way does it cut? Are you betting here on a direction in the yield market, particularly off a quiescent jobs report? Yeah, Tom, I, th- I think in, when you look at this report, it's there are some mixed comments, as Jonathan was just talking about, between um, the wages But the headline is really a story of gradual labor market normalization. And gradual labor market normalization basically continues the market expectation that the hike uh, of the last meeting was the last hike. And, and, And that's the big change in the in the yield market outlook is that we're seeing the effects of normalization in the labor market. Yes, wages will follow. Maybe not. That remains the uncertainty. But you look at the ECI report, you look at some of the other broader reports, what do they show you? They show a gradual slowing in wage inflation. And so that feeds into this narrative that the Fed had can be done. They can wait. And so for the for the yield outlook, it's it's really about the shape of the curve. What we saw this week, the steepening, uh, and I think that right. remains to be the, uh, the the message that that's our, our our main focus in terms of our position. In your broad mandate, which spread gives you the most information right now? Which comparison of two yields gives you the most information? Um, you know, you can you look at lots of different measures. We we tend to like the five year, five year forward. Um, you know, it, 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 it's a it's a nice measure. It, it, it captures both the level and the shape of the curve, uh, and and it's moving. And you know, we've seen a significant move uh, this week, and and for good reason. The back end of the curve uh, is is definitely a bit more challenged when you look at historic levels. A five-year, five-year forward. If you look at, I think you're showing here. On, on, you know, we look at the two's ten spread, uh, and I think that's really where the market pricing is a little bit vulnerable. When we look at all of the information that we saw come out this week, uh, and, you know, and and away from kind of the monetary policy focus, it's it's really about fiscal policy. We had the refunding announcement, uh, and, and you see very, very compressed term premium. Uh, both in real and inflationary space. And, and that's, I think, the vulnerability that we're looking at. 
Jeff, I have to go back to something that you're saying, that what people are basically are assuming is the Fed is done. They're not going to raise rates more. And that's what you're seeing today, where there's a little bit of a move at the front end. But really, the move that you're seeing is at the 10-year yield once again, reaching 4.2%, the highest levels going back to November. This is the key question. Is the Fed going to take their foot off the brake at a time when we're still seeing wages go up? Is that basically the assumption of markets now looking at a Fed comfortable with 3% inflation over a longer period of time and not needing to get down to 2% so quickly? Well, it's a, it's a really good question, Lisa. What does taking the foot off the brake mean? Does it, does it mean not doing another hike that they signaled last meeting two minutes ago? Or, or, or does it mean just simply leaving rates unchanged or does it mean, as the as the bond market is anticipating, that that they move to cutting interest rates? And I think as we progress this debate, we're going to increasingly talk not about the next Fed hike, but how much inflation decline, if we continue to see that decline, how much inflation decline do you need to see before the Fed has to start cutting rates? Because as inflation declines and the Fed stays pat, Real interest rates, the real Fed funds rate, which is the, the, the transmission mechanism for monetary policy, that begins to actually increase. So how much actual breaking does the Fed tolerate, not by their action, but by further declines in interest rates? And that's going to be the metric that, 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 that Paul was really telling you about in the, the press conference from last week. Uh, that was really the story is yeah. that as inflation comes down, their policy gets tighter and how much, how, how willing are they going to be to see that tightening in policy? Again, this is all predicated on this expectation that we'll continue to see uh, further declines in inflation. And obviously, if that, that changes, the whole story changes. But that is kind of the natural breaking that occurs without the Fed having to do anything. Just quickly here, Jeff, it seems like there's been a narrative shift over the past couple of weeks where higher for longer is more acceptable as well as a soft landing type of scenario. How much are you leaning into this? And a adjusting your expectation of yields being higher for longer, but also risk assets continuing to chug along in the meantime. Yeah, I mean, part of the problem with adjusting too much is that the market pricing for so many risky assets is, is already there. So when you when you look at is there a lot of opportunity in credit markets, for example, for the soft landing being realized, uh, you, you see that you're, you're pricing in, in many cases mid-expansion type levels for expectations. You know, you look at the high yield bond market, for example. It, it, it has been on a tightening tear. It has never really reflected the same degree of recession fears and recession probabilities that you see, say, you know, the consensus economics profession now. You know, moving away from pushing down recession probabilities, you never really had that priced into the credit markets. This huge disconnect between, you know, the sluice, the, the the credit indications in the surveys, and what's priced in the market. So there is an opportunity. It's really about carry rather yeah. than price appreciation, because a lot of that price appreciation already happened off of the uh, November lows of last year. Jeff Rosenberg, thank you so much. We're BlackRock this morning. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. 
The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Right now, on this jobs day, with all that we see in the market, futures up, you know, fractionally up as well. Without question, the conversation of the day on having the courage to be in this market, given the sum of all our fears. Edward Yardeni joins us, president of Yardeni Research. I can't say enough about his prescience once again across many decades in October of last year. Reaffirm, Ed Yardeni, how a bull acts and moves forward, given the many fears that are out there? Well, I've uh, been thinking that uh, we've we've been in a recession since early last year, as we've discussed before. It's just been a rolling recession. Now I think we're in a rolling recovery. And I think uh, increasingly the markets obviously have uh, discounted that. And the so-called Godot recession still hasn't shown up. It may show up at some point. But with regards to the market, uh, my year-end target for the S&P 500 is 4,600. <laughs> we got there a few days ago. Uh, so I'm thinking I'm not going to raise my target of 4,600. I'm going to keep it there. I think it's going to turn out that uh, the expectations at the beginning of the year was that we would have a pretty lousy first half of the year and a, a good second half of the year for the market. I think it's going to be the reverse of that. I think we've clearly had a very good first half. And I think the second half is just going to be challenging. I don't think it's going to be a big downer. I think it's going to be kind of sideways. September's coming, and that obviously could create some problems. But by year end, I think we'll be at 4,600, which is where we were a few days ago. How much are you buying in Ed, to this idea that we're going to see higher rates for longer, particularly in duration, in 10-year notes, in 30-year yeah. notes? Well, I, I've thought that uh, on short-term rates that the Fed uh, was pretty clear what they wanted to do. And I took them at their word. I know there's always skepticism and the feeling that the Fed isn't going to get it right, but uh, they've been saying they wanted to get the short-term rate up to a restrictive level. I think they're there at five and a quarter percent. I don't think they have to do any more. I think just, they're just going to leave it there. Uh, what is interesting is my friends, the bond vigilantes seem to be saddling up. And uh, I thought we'd hold around four uh, percent, but here we are back at the November high of 4.2 percent. So it's looking a little dicey on the bond side. And I think um, suddenly we have to take uh, into consideration that while the Fitch rating uh, agencies uh, downgraded the U.S. government debt was sort of their event that focused everybody back on the deficit, the fact of the matter is we've all known that the deficit is, is a problem. We've known that fiscal policy is profligate. It's just the market cares about it now. So if the market cares about it, I've got to care about it. At a certain point, Ed, when does the higher rate structure at the long end, at the 10-year, at the 30-year end, not on the short end, threaten your bull thesis? Well, I think that uh, it uh, already has done its damage in the uh, one area where the rolling recession has hit, and that's in housing. But even there, as, you, uh, as we've seen uh, of late, the housing market's holding up pretty well, at least in terms of of prices and there really is a shortage. The, the real issue is the consumer will higher long-term rates uh, knock down the consumer. And I don't think that's necessarily the case 
at this point. The consumer obviously depends on a certain amount of consumer debt, but the key is employment, the key is wages. And while employment weakens somewhat, it can always be revised one way or the other. We know that the wage number uh, at 4.4% well exceeded uh, the, uh, well, let's make it 0.4 because we're doing month to month. So 0.4, we know that it exceeded the CPI. And so uh, real wages are increasing and consumers have a lot of uh, wealth in their houses. Uh, the baby boomers have a lot of wealth. They're retiring and spending it. So all in all, um, I'm not quite sure how a uh, increase in the bond yield uh, knocks the consumer down unless that uh, you know we we just get uh, some sort of a banking crisis event again right. uh, as a result of that just quickly then ed how much are you thinking that the fed is still gone enough even if we are seeing this in sticky inflation and wage yeah. pressures well it's it looks sticky but i think the productivity numbers are starting to come through yesterday we had a remarkable increase in productivity of three and a half percent. It was so remarkable uh, that even a bull like myself didn't quite believe it because it uh, also uh, indicated that uh, employment was flat, which wasn't really the case, as we know, based on the monthly data. But uh, I think productivity is going to make a comeback and we may very well see wages rising faster than prices. And long ago and far away on a Friday evening, Lou Rukeyser would sit there with you on the couch and he'd say... Right. What's it look like long term? Modern day long term is nine months. Maybe it's a year, Ed Yardeni. For the mere mortals watching and listening, where long term is three years or five years, frame out the growth you see in revenue of our equities. It seems to be pretty darn good, like 6%, 4%, whatever. Give us a Yardeni three-year perspective. Well, I actually like to do a decade, a decade perspectives, and uh, this decade I think uh, started out with all sorts of uh, problems. Uh, at the very beginning of the decade, before the pandemic hit, I started talking about a possibility of uh, the roaring 2020s with productivity making a big uh, comeback, and that looked absolutely delusional there for the past couple of years. But it's looking uh, like it might be a reasonable way to think about the the rest of the decade, right. not just uh, AI, but uh, robotics, automation, lots of technologies there that are going to boost uh, productivity. And so I think from a revenues perspective, uh, you know, revenues tend to increase along with nominal GDP. If we get a productivity uh, boost here, uh, there's no particular reason why revenues can grow 5 to 8%. Should we fear the concentration of 7, 8, 9, 10 mega names? The mega names have reported mm -hmm. two of them in the last 24 yeah. hours. How should we interpret the durability of what we see from these names? Well, first and foremost, I personally try not to get too emotional about the markets. I mean, it's it's easy it's easy to say and, and hard to do. And I do go on the same roller coaster as everybody else. But uh, if you try to control your emotions, uh, you just have to deal with the facts. And the fact is we've got, uh, I call them the mega cap eight. We got eight companies that account for 27% of the market cap of the S&P 500. And there's, there are great companies, as Amazon demonstrated uh, uh, with its latest earnings report. And I think they're going to continue to uh, have an outsized uh, impact on the market capitalization of the market, which means mm -hmm. we have to accept that the PE is higher because their PE is higher. Ed Yardeni, thank you so much. And a Friday morning, Mr. Yardeni, Yardeni Research. For any kids listening, Barbie still has legs. <laughs> okay. I just want to, you know. <laughs>
that to confirm me. that. Just confirm oh, that. Oh, my okay. God. Tom Forte joined us now. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, it's good to catch up. Catching up yesterday was really revealing as well. Some insightful comments you made on Apple where you essentially said, and you've written about this, you think maybe the stock had gone too far. We're down this morning by 1.8%. You're aware of the bullish thesis, Tom. There's this upgrade cycle. Lots of people sitting on old phones. They're all going to upgrade and buy new ones. Where is the upgrade right now going into the new launch of new products in a month or so? So the, the most concerning statistic from Tim Cook on the call yesterday was that consumers, more than half, are already paying for their Apple product on an installment basis. So I think the low-hanging fruit's been picked to the extent that that was the opportunity for Apple to get you to go from buying your iPhone or having your iPhone essentially fully subsidized by the carrier to now having the consumer pay for it on an installment basis, often with no interest. I also am concerned that the carriers are going to subsidize the 15 to a lesser degree than the 14 or 13. Yes, they want more consumers on their 5G networks where they've invested billions, but their times are tough too right now. So that comments on the iphone are concerning and i think that's what's weighing the stock time away from your neutral call and and to go to the apple fanboys and all that the bottom line is it's an ugly june ugly july it happens every year we have to wait for september somebody with a black turtleneck walks out on stage and tells us the second coming of apple and omg the stock goes up why is that going to be different this time it's going to be different this time because i think that they just told us that the september quarter where they're gonna tell us about this new wonderful iPhone is going to have negative revenue growth. And that while the iPhone will have an improvement from the negative 2.4% it did in the June quarter, uh, it'll likely be negative as well. So yes, they'll be touting the, every new feature on the iPhone, but the right. comments they made about the financial impact are pretty uh, disappointing. The Open Prayer Services picks it up and crosses. How far out do you go where services catches up and advances and overcomes iPhone dynamics? Is it a three-year lookout? Is it out 10 years? How far out is that magic point where services become really important? So the math suggests probably more like five years when you think of the relative growth rate of services to everything else. But if you look at the quarter, hardware was down, iPhones were down, iPads were down, laptops were down, services was up. That's great news. And I do believe over the long term, Apple as a service is a real possibility. You pay $200 a month, you get the latest and greatest iPhone, you probably get Apple TV and other things, and then you're not thinking about the fact that you're essentially paying $2,000 for that new iPhone. You're just thinking about the $200 a month and getting the latest and greatest iPhone. Uh, I think that that's the opportunity long term. But mathematically, I think it's more than five years out before services is more than you know half revenue. So, Tom, you did uh, decrease your price target for Apple, but you increased your price target for Amazon after they delivered much better than expected results. And suddenly everyone's heralding Andy Jassy as the hero of Wall Street. How long can this be the case for him to keep cutting and keep beating on the top and bottom lines across the board? My best answer right now is that this is 12 months. So they, have, they just had their good June quarter, their good outlook for the September quarter, They'll have a good December quarter and a good March quarter. I am very concerned that at some point reality sets in. And to the extent that these cost cuts are making them less customer-centric, that's going to slow the flywheel, price convenience selection. So I think the next 12 months, they're good. Day one of the next year, I'm concerned. 
Some people might argue that the cloud business is going to take over all. It has done the heavy lifting for all the profitability of this company, and it showed signs of picking back up. There will be questions about whether it's gaining market share versus Microsoft's Azure. How long can that really be the main flag bearer for the company? I mean, is that enough to really offset what you see down the line on the customer service side in the sort of retail side of things? The answer is not long enough. So we're, we're you know, cheering a 12.2% growth rate compared to a 15.8% growth rate when they reported the March quarter, though it is better than the 10.8% they suggested in the month of April. That's the slowest growth rate since AWS was launched in 2006. Andy Jassy's bragging about double-digit growth as if it's not going to be sustained. So a lack of double-digit growth for one of their most important profit centers is hugely problematic especially given the current state of their e-commerce business. Amazon collectively needs something like 3.4 billion for an incremental basis point or percentage point of revenue growth. Uh, they're gonna need advertising, they're gonna need video, they're gonna need healthcare, they're gonna need something else to come in uh, to take the baton from AWS over the long term. And Tom, can you describe how service on the e-commerce side has deteriorated over the last year? Yes. So the, the best example is anecdotal. So I had a defective uh, smoke alarm that I purchased on Amazon. Uh, not that long ago, they would say, we're sorry it's defective, we'll send you a replacement, uh, put the old one on your porch and UPS will pick it up for free. Now they want $7.99 for UPS to pick it up, or they want me to go to Whole Foods, uh, wait in line at Whole Foods to return it. So that to me is one example. Uh, what's gonna happen is I'm gonna start thinking more about going to Target. I'm gonna think more about going to Walmart to Costco, to other retailers. And I think that's hugely concerning for Amazon, something I'm monitoring closely. It's anecdotal, but I hear the same thing from so many people. Tom, Tom Forde of DA Davidson, great call on Apple going into the earnings. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Let's turn to politics right now, the politics of the United States of America. We do this so much for our international audience. Wendy Schiller has advised us with Brown University, the Taubman Center for American uh, Politics. Wendy, I want to go to the word cumulative. We're using it in economics now in the Fed. We have cumulative indictments. What is the difference between this single event of yesterday and the fact there's been one, there's been two, 
there's been three, and dare I say there could be four. What's the difference, the distinction? It depends on the audience, Tom. It's a great point. Is For Trump supporters, you know, really uh, very loyal people who have stuck with the former president, this just emboldens them, keeps them more loyal. You know, their team is losing, and they're going to basically be on that team, and nothing is going to shake them. So they get more emboldened, but I think it, it continues to turn off independent voters who were the swing voters in some of these key states that uh, former President Trump lost in 2020. So the audience that gets disgusted by sort of three indictments, that, that audience was leaving anyway or already left. They're not going back to Trump. But the Trump base, particularly coming up into the primary, is more emboldened and wants to defend their president. We'll see if these donations keep coming in, the small money donations that he's been using to pay his defense funds. That's going to get more expensive. Does that money keep flowing in? Right. Well, Professor Schiller, what I find fascinating here is the zeitgeist, oh, in the last 24 hours, there's one idea of how small the Trump audience is, yet obviously very loyal and all that. Where? Are, what are the other Republicans doing? Are they waiting? Are the Republicans moving to independence? Are they moving to a relative conservative like Biden? I'm not, I don't believe they're going to move to a, a liberal democratic stance, but what are those Republicans doing right now that have had it over the indictments? Uh, the Republicans that are you know, not for the, the former president are just holding their breath, I think, and thinking, OK, what do we do? I mean, Republicans are, are really good about coming home to the party nominee. The exception was 2020. But typically, even when there's division, as we saw in 2016, Republicans come home to the nominee and they get out the door and they vote in presidential elections. Right now, the question is, will anybody, including DeSantis, come up and challenge the president enough to make it worth investing in somebody else, either with money or with your vote six months from now. But essentially, I think that's the stance right now. Is this person really going to make it? The, the House Republicans are already all in on Trump. I mean, that's it. That game is over. So they're, they're with Trump. Uh, but the actual rank and file, we have to wait and see for six months. You know, when the reality that this man will be the nominee again and that he could be president again really hits home, do we see any diversion in some of these Republican Party voters? And that seems to be uh, what Elaine K. Mark of Brookings said yesterday, that she doesn't think that Donald Trump will be the nominee in the end and that essentially uh, people will move away from him as it becomes clear that he will not win the general election. From your vantage point, what's sort of the tipping point and who is the likely person to emerge at a time when yesterday we were talking about Tim Scott and how he has become the Wall Street darling in some ways, at least when it comes to fundraising? Yeah, you know, I, I, Elaine has, has been in politics a long time and knows what she's talking about, but I've, I've shifted. I thought he wouldn't get the nomination, and now I just don't see enough people getting out the door to vote in the primaries coming up six months from now to, to get knock him off his perch. I think we have to see the Iowa polls seem to be shifting a little bit. DeSantis seems to be gaining some ground. If DeSantis can gain a little bit of ground in the next couple of months, then it becomes worth a second look for primary voters and investors, campaign contributors. So we just have to see if he can get any momentum. Even if he's losing to Trump, momentum will probably, you know, reignite his campaign. Then he becomes sort of the obvious option. But he's got some real liabilities in the general election as well. So I'm not sure the electability factor for DeSantis actually, you know, gets him over the top and defeats Trump in the primary. One thing I keep thinking about is that the entire pitch for President Biden to run again is that he is the only Democratic candidate who could win against uh, Donald Trump. This, though, at a time when his grassroots fundraising 
is really lackluster. He's not getting the small donations that really indicate a healthy popular campaign and his popularity ratings have flagged. Does it look less and less likely that he can win re-election if he's against anyone except for Trump? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the big that's a big question, Lisa. Uh, but, you know, when we look at the economy, which at the moment seems to be settling it down and the, the doom and gloom and dire predictions seem to be diminishing. Unemployment stays relatively low. Inflation gets under control a year from now or more than a year from now. Uh, voters are going to say, OK, things are pretty good. Things are pretty stable. And if Trump is the nominee, then we go back to chaos. I think that in the end is literally what saves Joe Biden and gives him a re-election. Wendy Schiller, thank you, Wendy. Wendy's you at a brand university this morning. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.